Well, there's a sweet new boy band hip hop group out. Okay. Do you want to know who what their name is? Sure. It's Milk and Beans. They're fucking ill. Welcome to the Four Corners Crime Cast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie, and today we are talking about Susan Smith. And uh, where'd you do your research this week, Katie? The books for this were Sins of the Mother by Maria F. Tiamatis and Beyond All Reason, My Life with Susan Smith by David Smith, her ex-husband. And uh, where are we going on this one? This is in Union, South Carolina. Union, South Carolina. And this is like the polar opposite of Andrea Yates, basically. Same crime, very different circumstances. Opposite, opposite motives or opposite reasoning? What's the what's? The I mean, the, she did not have any sort of major mental health issues. I guess she might have had mental health issues, but nothing that made her do this. Basically, okay. And it's, you know, the book that you read was literally written by the ex-husband. Yes, David All Smith. That. Well, that's interesting. Was it a good read? Is he a good writer? No comment. It was okay. He was very... Biased? Yes, he was very one-sided and very... um... Traumatized? Whiny. Whiny. (laughs) I don't want to talk bad about him, but yeah, he very much was, woe is me. Not about the crimes themselves, but about their marriage. It was more 50-50, their divorce, than he likes to say it is. Okay. Why don't you start us off? Susan Vaughn Smith was born in Union, South Carolina on September 26, 1971, to Linda and Harry Vaughn. The relationship between her parents was often unstable, and when she was six years old, Linda, her mother, asked for a divorce. Her father, Harry, did not take the divorce well and began drinking heavily, spending all of his evenings in a local bar. Five weeks after the divorce was finalized, on January 15, 1978, Harry Vaughn committed suicide by shooting himself in the stomach. It's a strange place to shoot yourself to commit suicide, isn't it? According to Sins of the Mother, many people believe that Harry's suicide was only supposed to be an attempt, not actually kill him. They say that it was his way of getting attention and reconciling the family. Moments after shooting himself, Harry called for help, but it did not arrive in time. So that's why he shot himself in the stomach. More than likely, yes. It's a cry for help. Did he call the police on himself, or when they said he called for help, was he just yelling for help? I think, no, I think he called the police, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay. Soon after Susan's father's death, her mother remarried to a man named Beverly Russell. I've never met a man named Bev. Have you, Rory? Okay. I think they called the Kool-Aid man Bev for short. <laughs> Bev owned an appliance store in Union and was both very wealthy and very popular. This was a particularly rough time in Susan's young life, as she took her father's death extremely hard and was now faced with a man she hardly knew trying to fill his role. When she was only 13, she attempted suicide by taking an overdose of aspirin. Despite her emotional struggles, she maintained perfect grades and participated in multiple school clubs in junior high. She was very well-liked and one of the popular girls in high school. As a senior, she was voted friendliest female at her school. Did you guys watch the Dr. Grande video that I sent you? Yes. When he, what did he say? 
He was like, yeah, she was voted friendliest female, which I guess they ran out of awards to give. <laughs> oh, shit. So where did it get the information that she was a popular girl in high school? Like, where did that... From the principal. Where did that come from? Was it just her winning this friendliest female award? No, she was just really well-liked. I mean, I'm, people talk about when they knew her, when she committed her crimes, I'm sure. So no one but her family knew that when she was 17, she went to her school's guidance counselor and told them that her stepfather, Bev Russell had molested her. Social services was contacted, and a sheriff was sent to investigate. When he tried speaking to Susan and her mother, both said that they were not interested in pursuing charges, and the matter was dropped. There was eventually a deal made between Bev's attorney and a circuit court solicitor, but the records are sealed. We do know that Bev fully admitted to molesting Susan, and that they continued a sporadic sexual relationship all the way until just two months before her crime. Wow, that's crazy. Is it just because it's like a... South Carolina? No, I'm thinking like a predator-prey relationship relationship where he had groomed her for all these years. Or... I don't... I'm honestly not really sure. It wasn't mentioned in Sons of the Mother, but they didn't talk about her trial. And I guess he actually got on the witness stand and said that he'd been having sex until like two months before. That is insane. Yeah. How did her mom feel about that? Probably not good. As a senior in high school, Susan began working part-time at the local Winn-Dixie, a grocery store. David describes her as always catching the attention of men, but rarely flirting back. That was until she met two of her co-workers, one of which was a married man, and began seeing them. Simultaneously? I think so. Her and David Smith were just friends at this point, as David was engaged to his longtime girlfriend. Susan eventually discovered she was pregnant and decided to have an abortion, which ended the relationship between her and the married boyfriend. It was his kid? Yes. For the second time in her life, Susan took an overdose of aspirin and anison, a pill that contained aspirin and caffeine. She spent eight days in the local hospital and was released November 15, 1989. When Susan returned to work, David Smith began to show more and more interest in her. They eventually formed a friendship, which turned into a relationship and David was forced to tell his fiancée that he was cheating on her. After he and Susan had been dating for close to a year, she found out she was pregnant. They decided they would keep the baby and get married. That's a dumb idea. Yes. Always a bad idea. Usually, yes. Sometimes it works. Eleven days before their wedding, David's brother Danny passed away from complications from Crohn's disease. David was extremely close with his brother, and his entire world shattered when Danny died. He wanted to postpone the wedding, thinking that it should be a happy day, not overshadowed by his brother's recent passing. Susan's mother, Linda, insisted that they follow through with their plans, and Susan always listened to her mother. This was the first, but certainly not the last time, that Linda would make decisions for the couple. Where did Linda get the power over Susan? I, I just don't understand, because this was the woman that lived with the man that molested her. How is she still so trusting of her mother's choices and stuff? I'm honestly not sure. Maybe it had to do with the divorce, and I think it was Linda that asked for the divorce, and so she seemed like the stronger figure to Susan, and Susan also lived with her after Harry moved out before he killed himself, so I think, and I mean women generally are just closer to their mothers too, so your mom knows best. After their honeymoon, Susan moved in with David, who lived with his great-grandmother, their marriage was practically destined to fail from the very beginning. They were pushed into marriage by an unplanned pregnancy, then forced to live with not just a regular roommate, 
but a 90-year-old woman who was practically David's second mother. I can think of honestly no better way to start your family than by living with an old woman. And I could be, like, pronouncing it correctly, but in the book, he said that they called her Moner. (laughs) M-O-N-E-R. You know, first of all, it's not, it's bad enough that you're going to impose on this 90-year-old woman's house, but now you're going to give her a fucking nickname? Come on, guys. Have some class. Yeah, David moved out. When he was, like, 16, I think, to live with her because his mother was a Jehovah's Witness. I'd probably choose to live with the grandma as well. Yeah. To make matters even worse, David's father attempted suicide by overdosing on pills not long after Danny's death. There seems to be a lot of, like, suicide in this little town and area. Yeah, it it was mostly these families, though. Really? Yeah, I think it was just kind of they attracted each other. David had been trying to reach his father from work and could not get a hold of him. Since his great-grandmother's home was only a few houses away, David called Susan and asked her to go check on him. She was the one that found him collapsed on the floor and saved his life. If she wasn't already stressed enough, Susan gave birth to Michael Daniel Smith on October 10, 1991. Things finally seemed to look up for David and Susan after the birth of their son. They would argue occasionally, but only as much as new parents are expected to. In the winter of 1992, Susan's parents gave the couple $6,000 to put down on a home of their own. Almost as soon as they moved in, the marriage began falling apart. Susan began an affair with an ex-boyfriend of hers. David caught them together multiple times, and, being a 20-year-old, figured the best way to handle it was to beat the shit out of the man. Susan broke it off and they tried again, wanting to be together for the sake of Michael. It ended a second time when David began an affair with a co-worker, Tiffany Moss. After the birth of Michael, Susan grew self-conscious about her body and wasn't interested in sex. She also grew distant emotionally, and her and David fought frequently. Feeling lonely and shot down, David started seeing Tiffany for emotional support and to satisfy his urges. Is that more of like the cop-out of a 20-year-old then? The fact that he decided that, oh, she's feeling down on herself which is making me feel like down on myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was... When I was reading this part of the book, it came off very fucked up that he basically went, oh, you won't have sex with me? I'm not going to make you feel better. I'm just going to go fuck someone else. Susan pretty quickly caught on to their relationship and became very jealous. Eventually, David broke it off with Tiffany, and they attempted to reconcile. During this time, they once again had unprotected sex, and Susan became pregnant. Alexander Tyler Smith was born August 5, 1993. Once again, they attempted to reconcile, but for the last time. Susan asked David for a divorce in the summer of 1994, telling him she was not happy. David moved into his own apartment, and Susan stayed in their home. He was served with divorce papers, which cited that Susan was filing because of David's adultery with Tiffany Moss. He was rightfully angry, as Susan had been the first one to step out on the marriage, and had, towards the end of their final attempt at reconciliation, told him she didn't care if he saw Tiffany. He heard that Susan was seeing someone too, a man named Tom Finley, who was the son of Susan's boss at a manufacturing plant called Conso. It's highly debated how much of an influence Finley had on Susan's eventual actions. She was infatuated with him, deeply in love, but he didn't feel the same way. 
They saw each other for a short period before he wrote her a letter on October 18th, explaining that he felt they were too different and the relationship would never work. He told Susan that he was young and didn't think he was responsible enough to be the stepfather to two young children. Susan had been granted full custody of Michael and Alex, but would still let them see David frequently. When he was working, she would usually drop them off at a friend's home so she could go to the bar and see Finley. Besides constantly pawning her children off on friends, Susan seemed to be handling the divorce and motherhood okay. Once she received the letter from Finley, everything changed. She was noticeably quiet, especially on October 24th. David had called her and could tell over the phone that something was wrong. He prodded, but she wouldn't tell him what was going on, so he dropped it. What did the letter from Finley say? Basically that she was a really nice lady and he just was too young and he didn't want to have kids and he didn't want her kids in nicer words. I see. I mean, he was as nice as you can be when you break up with somebody, basically. It's kind of weird when your dad is her boss, too. Yeah. And he's very powerful and wealthy. and. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the 90s way of breaking up with someone by text message, though. Probably, yeah. It was, the whole thing was just weird. Susan was especially quiet on October 25th. That's my birthday. She went to lunch with some of her coworkers, including Tom Finley, then returned to work. At 3.30, she told her boss she needed to leave early, but didn't give a specific reason why. Her boss remembers that she was close to crying and seemed extremely upset. She picked up her children and began to drive around Union. At 8.45, she arrived at John D. Long Lake and parked her car at the top of the boat ramp. She put it into neutral and pulled the emergency brake before stepping out and standing next to the car. After staring out onto the lake for some time, she turned to the car, released the emergency brake, and watched as her red Mazda protege rolled down the ramp and into the water with her two sleeping sons strapped in their car seats. It floated for a while as it filled with water, then sank to the bottom. Three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alex both drowned. Later, after the car was recovered, police learned that Susan had left the headlights on. Some, including David, speculate that she did this so she knew that the car had made it far enough into the lake that it wouldn't be found easily. So a 91 Protégé has, because there were two types of headlights in the 90s for cars, there were the kind that were sealed, and you replaced the whole bulb, which could get, like, submerged without filling up with water and popping. But then there was the other kind, which had a housing, and a bulb that fit in it, and it was supposed to be watertight, but theoretically, when it sinks, it's still going to fill up with water, and those bulbs will pop when they, they'll actually pop if you get your hand oils on them, so I'm pretty sure that those bulbs popped pretty quick once they were in the water. When they recovered the car, and it flipped back over because it had flipped when it sank, it flipped right side up, and the headlights turned back on. I don't know how or why. Maybe it was like a freak thing. Now that her children were dead, Susan had to decide on a story. She thought for a moment, mustered up the best panic she could, and ran, screaming. She ran straight to a home near John D. Long Lake and began pounding on the door, still screaming. Shirley McLeod, the homeowner, answered the door and found Susan, begging for help. Between her sobs, all she could say was, He's got my kids and my car. A black man has got my kids and my car. 
Shirley's husband and son ran out of the house, hoping to catch up to the car to find the children abandoned. As Shirley calmed her, Susan began to tell more of her story. She said that as she sat at a red light, a black man ran up to the passenger side and got in. Pressing a gun into her stomach, he forced her to drive for a bit before having her stop and get out. She asked why she couldn't take her children, and he said he didn't have time, but he wouldn't hurt them. Susan collapsed to the ground as he sped away and sat for a few minutes before getting up and running to the McLeod home. As Susan calmed down more and they waited for police to arrive, she started making phone calls. She first called her mother Linda, then stepfather Bev, and finally David Smith. Not long after, 40 friends and relatives of Susan's had arrived, along with every officer that was working. Even the sheriff, Howard Wells, turned around and headed for the McLeod home. When he arrived, he took Susan's report and sent his deputies out to begin the search for Michael and Alex. South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED, joined the search, using their helicopters equipped with heat sensors to search the dense woods near John D. Long Lake. Eventually, they left the McLeod home and set up a command post in Susan's mother's home. By the morning, the entire city of Union knew about the kidnapping. Some people found the story suspicious right off the bat, including Susan's neighbor. She said that any time Susan knew she was going to be home late, she would leave the porch light on, but the light had been off all night. Not really proof of anything. No, but I mean, if you know someone's routine and they change that, then something's wrong. Hmm. She just got tired of having moths all over the porch. My bulb could have burnt out. That would be my first assumption if I saw that. But, so, let's say that your neighbor has children, right? And they always have their porch light on. And then the children are abducted by a man who stole your car, or stole your neighbor's car, with the kids in it. Would you just be like, oh, the light bulb burned out, that sucks. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's just all around suspicious circumstantial evidence, basically. Hmm. Can't convict on circumstantial evidence, though, Katie. Just ask OJ. Sometimes you can. If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. There's a lot of people that have been convicted on circumstantial evidence. Well, they obviously weren't wealthy. (laughs) That's true. Susan met with a composite artist who helped create a sketch of the man that had taken the car and children. Susan said that he was a black man, around 40, wearing a hat, jeans, and a plaid jacket. It was basically the most generic description she could come up with while still sounding legitimate enough for the police to believe her story. Well, they use the really horrible way of creating a composite that the FBI uses where they have that huge bank of features and you like flip through the book and pick what looks the most like and then they like combine it all, which... I feel like that'd be really difficult to give an accurate description that way. It's like NBA 2K, making your own player. Yeah, and it also heavily influences people's memories, and so you'll never get a good composite out of them ever again after that. Hmm. What we need is a way to just turn our brain thoughts into on-paper thoughts. It's really good if you don't actually, if you never saw a person and you wanted to make something up. We have it all laid out in front of you. So she had the perfect opportunity right here, and she went super generic. Yeah, she wasn't very creative, I don't think. Pictures of Michael and Alex were given to reporters who aired them across the country. Calls began coming in to the Adam Walsh Center, an organization started by John Walsh after his son's kidnapping and murder. 
He made a TV show too, right? FBI's Most Wanted, yes. Oh, I thought it was called The Catch a Predator. It's America's Most Wanted. Is it? Yeah. America's Most Wanted? Yeah. Same thing. Welcome to America's Most Wanted. I'm your host, John Walsh. Susan's sister also called and asked them to come down and help. Members of the Adam Walsh Center were trained to assist in searches, media coverage, and acted as liaisons for the families of missing children. Two women from the center arrived on October 27th and helped David with his first media appearance, asking for a safe return of his boys. Susan chose not to join him and would continue to avoid any interviews unless they were absolutely necessary for protecting her cover. While David went in front of the cameras, divers were out in John D. Long Lake in a nearby canal searching for the car. Unfortunately, they found nothing because they were searching too close to the shore. Police assumed that if the car had been driven into the lake, it would have been done so at a semi-high rate of speed. When this happens, the car will sink as soon as it hits the water, as the wave stops any forward momentum. No one considered that the car may have just rolled into the water, allowing it to get much farther into the lake. Because it slowly fills with water instead of pretty much hitting a stop and filling up quick. Yeah, it just floats out and then eventually will sink. By this point, police had received over a thousand leads, none of which were credible. A crime like this had never occurred in the small town of Union, but Sheriff Wells knew exactly how to handle it. When the divers and extensive searches hadn't uncovered any sort of evidence, he set his sights on Susan. He had her and David take polygraphs on the 27th. David passed his with flying colors, but Susan's results were inconclusive. The results showed she was being the most deceptive when she was asked if she knew where her children were. Police also started seeing the flaws in Susan's story. She claimed that there had been no one else on the road when the man jumped into her car at the red light. The traffic signal that she said she was at is equipped with one of the sensors that only changes the light when there's cross traffic. For Susan to be sitting at that red light, there would have to be another car on the road or it wouldn't have been red. Now, what's the time frame on something like that, though? I, I'm not exactly sure how those sensors work. Are they motion sensors? Are they weight sensors? Are they... Mm, I think it's infrared. Infrared sensors? Kind of, yeah. And I think so we the... have them here. You've probably sat at one of those lights. Ours have the little, um, like, elves inside of them that switch them. Yeah, one so... of my math teachers at Pima was, like, super proud because she helped design those sensors. So here's my question though: Was wouldn't it, that light stay red as the cross sensor had been tripped the other way? Like, let's say someone was last going that direction, wouldn't the light still be red going this way until someone pulled up? Maybe we could get Katie's teacher in here to tell us. It's possible that she arrived at the red light right as the cross cross traffic had gone through, but. I assume that they knew more about this specific light. It could have been the ones where you've got, like, 10 seconds to get across the intersection or you're going to be at another red. So hmm. they knew something was weird about it that we don't know, I guess. She had also said she was headed to one of her friend's homes, but when police interviewed him, he says he was not expecting her, nor was he even home. When she was asked where she'd been before she headed towards her friend's house, she said she'd taken the boys shopping at Walmart. When the store was canvassed by police, absolutely no one remembered seeing her or the children. She admitted at this point that she hadn't gone to Walmart, she'd just driven around, but didn't want to tell police in the fear that it would sound suspicious. It's always more suspicious to do, to, to lie 
about what you were doing when something like this happened? Because then they're like, why'd you lie? To make matters worse, Susan began telling friends that she would, quote, always cherish the memories of her babies when she spoke to them on the phone. Despite all of the inconsistencies, police couldn't do much with the circumstantial evidence they had. They were also still following any and all leads that they got in case they were wrong about Susan being responsible. One thing they knew for sure was that Susan's original composite sketch of the carjacker would not do them any favors. Gian Boylan, a sketch artist who has solved many cases with her drawings, was called and asked to come down and create a more accurate sketch. Do you think the other artist was like, don't show her my sketch, don't show her my sketch, please? Probably. Just burn it. One of her most famous cases had been the kidnapping and murder of Polly Class, who was abducted from her bedroom in California. The first sketch was so bad that police disregarded the man who had kidnapped Polly because he looked nothing even close to the drawing. When Boylan came in and created a new sketch, it led to the arrest and conviction of Polly's killer. She was so close to Mark Class, Polly's father, and the two agreed that they would go to Union together. Mark wanted to offer any support and guidance he could, as he'd been through the same situation and had spent years helping with other missing children's cases. They both arrived in Union and went straight to speak with Susan. They were absolutely shocked when a family member told them that she did not want to speak to them and that they should leave. They stayed in Union for a few days and continued to try, but every time they went to the house, they were told to leave. Do you think that was because Susan was afraid that someone who had really lost their kids and hadn't killed them themselves, themselves, that that person would be able to tell that she wasn't really all that distraught? I think it's probably a combination of she wasn't able to make up creatively a description of someone that kidnapped her son in front of a a person that has been there and remembers what it's like to recognize this situation and i don't know you're probably right i would say but for the most part i think she was just afraid to have to try and give a better description of the man that didn't do anything and doesn't really exist as the days wore on police grew more and more suspicious of susan it had been six days since michael and alex were kidnapped and no evidence or leads had been found Susan was being interviewed every day, but would not admit to knowing where the children were. Because she and David were having trouble, they believed that Susan had just taken the children and hid them somewhere to keep them from David. On the 31st, the investigation made a dramatic 180 when police in Seattle, Washington, found a child matching Alex's description in a motel room. Even the clothing the boy was wearing matched Alex's, and the car connected to the room had South Carolina plates. Everyone's hopes were raised, then quickly crushed when it was confirmed the boy was not Alex. Did they ever find out where this kid belonged? He was there with his father, who had gone to Seattle to see his ex-wife, and asked motel attendant to watch the child. Okay. And then left. So they obviously were like, what the fuck is going on, and why do you have this kid? But it turned out to be his. He was like, hey, I've got my kid dressed up like a missing kid, but I want him to be a real missing kid. Can you watch him for a while? The event was significant enough, though, to get Susan in front of a camera for the first time since the disappearance. She tearfully begged for the safe return of her children, but refused to look at the camera, staring only at the ground. I'm going to say tearfully is a generous description. I feel like... It was fake tears. Crocodile tears for sure. 
By the seventh day, police started changing their tune. They began gently suggesting that they didn't believe Susan's story. For the first time, she got angry, even yelling at them. This didn't change the fact that she failed every polygraph she took. Because interviews had failed to get a confession, Sheriff Wells decided to try another route, the media. It began when he held a press conference and pleaded for the return of the children, saying Susan's story was easy to believe and they were doing everything they could. They then asked the city's ministers to hold a press conference asking the carjacker to return the children. Their final ploy was to print a fake newspaper story about a woman who killed her children, pled guilty, then served only a short sentence, and married a rich doctor after being released from prison. As cool as it would have been, they were never able to put their plan into action. This is the kind of Scooby-Doo police work that I really appreciate. Yeah, this is like small town. We can do whatever we want, basically. Hoodwink her and get her to confess. Like, that's crazy. I like that they threw the marrying the rich doctor part in there. Not like yeah. you're free and you don't end up in jail, but you also marry rich. Yeah. Everyone was super shocked, especially with Sheriff Wells, because being a small police department and being basically blind to crime like this, they all expected it to be a totally botched investigation and never go anywhere. Like we saw, like, say, John Bonet Ramsey with a huge Colorado police department who totally fucked it up. But Sheriff Wells was on it. Yeah, they very successfully handled this. On November 3rd, Susan went on three television programs and told the nation she had nothing to do with the disappearance of her children. Around 12.30, she left home to meet with officers at Sheriff Wells' request, but told David she was going to drop off some paperwork. She was questioned again, and after two hours, she broke down and confessed. She told her interrogators that she left the house the evening of October 25th, planning to kill herself. She was depressed and heard that Tom Finley didn't love her back. She wanted to kill herself, along with the boys, and didn't know what happened that made her get out of the car. Her written confession reads, When I left my home on Tuesday, October 25th, I was very emotionally distraught. I didn't want to live anymore. I felt like things could never get any worse. When I left home, I was going to ride around a little while, then go to my mom's. As I rode and rode, I felt even more anxiety coming upon me about not wanting to live. I felt I couldn't be a good mom anymore, but I didn't want my children to grow up without a mom. I felt I had to end our lives to protect us from any grief or harm. I had never felt so lonely and so sad in my entire life. I was in love with someone very much, but he didn't love me and never would. I had a very difficult time accepting that, but I had hurt him very much and I could see why he could never love me. When I was at John D. Long Lake, I had never felt so scared and unsure as I did then. I wanted to end my life so bad and was in my car ready to go down the ramp into the water, and I did go part way, but I stopped. I went again and stopped. Then I got out of the car and stood by the car a nervous wreck. Why was I feeling this? Why was everything so bad in my life? I had no answers to these questions. I dropped to the lowest point when I allowed my children to go down that ramp into the water without me. I took off running and screaming, Oh God, oh God, no, what have I done? Why did you let this happen? I wanted to turn around so bad and go back, but I knew it was too late. I was an absolute mental case. I couldn't believe what I had done. I love my children with all my heart, and that will never change. I have prayed to them for forgiveness and hope that they will find it in their heart to forgive me. 
I never meant to hurt them. I'm so sorry for what has happened, and I know that I need some help. I don't think I will ever be able to forgive myself for what I've done. My children, Michael and Alex, are with our Heavenly Father now, and I know that they will never be hurt again. As a mom, that means more than words can ever say. I knew from day one the truth would prevail, and I was so scared I didn't know what to do. It was very tough emotionally to sit and watch my family hurt like they did. It was time to bring a peace of mind to everyone, including myself. My children deserve to have the best, and now they will. I broke down on Thursday, November 3rd, and told Sheriff Howard Wells the truth. It wasn't easy, but after the truth was out, I felt like the world was lifted off my shoulders. I know now that it's going to be a tough and long road ahead of me. At this very moment, I don't feel I will be able to handle what's coming, but I have prayed to God that he give me the strength to survive each day and face these times and situations in my life that will be extremely painful. I have put my total faith in God, and he will take care of me. I call bullshit on this whole thing, and here's the why. Here's the reason why. This was semi-premeditated if she tried three times to kill her children. Mm -hmm. It was a plan she had thought out. She made a plan for afterwards. She's a liar. She did this because she felt that the two kids were what were holding her back from her love, and if they were gone, she'd be able to find love again. She's a killer. That's a bullshit confession. Exactly. Yeah, and she drew like little hearts and stuff all over it. Every time she said, I love my children, she would follow it with a little heart afterwards. And she was just very manipulative, saying that, oh, it was so hard on me emotionally to watch my family like that. But she never mentions that it's hard on her to watch her children roll into a lake and drown. No. She knew she was doing the right thing at that point. Yeah. She wanted Tom Finley and she would do everything to get him. Everyone was absolutely devastated when the news of Susan's confession broke, but none more than David. He fully believed the story Susan had originally told and remained hopeful his boys were alive the nine days that Susan kept the charade up. He wasn't even able to see them one last time, as their bodies had sat at the bottom of John D. Long Lake for nine days before they were recovered. Divers found the car exactly where Susan said it would be, over a hundred feet off the shore. Michael and Alex were both still strapped into their car seats. The entire nation mourned with David. Thousands of cards, poems, and crosses were sent to his home. Hundreds of bouquets were ordered and placed to John D. Long Lake and the cemetery, where they were buried together next to David's brother Danny. I feel pretty bad for the divers that had to go in and uh, get the kids out of there. That could be... All sorts of fucked up. Yeah, when he testified, he said that he swam down and he shined his, he shone his flashlight into the window and he could see a hand pressed to the glass. Oh. And yeah. just cried and cried. It fucked him up. I bet. Susan's trial took place over the course of 10 days in July of 1995. Her defense attorney claimed that she had dependent personality disorder, or DPD, along with major depression. DPD is characterized by an intense need to be taken care of by others. Those with DPD have difficulty making decisions on their own, have an intense fear of abandonment, and often cling to those in their lives, have difficulty being alone, and often avoid responsibilities by acting helpless so they will receive help from others. It is one of the most commonly diagnosed personality disorders. 
What makes this diagnosis questionable is David Smith's account of his marriage to Susan and beyond all reason. He describes her as cold, unemotional, and refusing any sort of intimacy with him towards the actual end of their marriage. She made decisions for the children on her own and wouldn't accept his reassurances that she looked good when she was uncomfortable with her body after the birth of Michael. Many people have described Susan as extremely manipulative, including one man she met in prison. Alfred Rowe was a correction officer who often worked around Susan. At one point, he and Susan were left alone together, and he claims she coerced and manipulated him into having sex with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy, right? Yeah. I imagine she, that happened. It probably took a lot of convincing. Yeah. Yeah, she's super manipulative. She probably looked at him and was like, hey, you want to have sex? And he was like... <laughs> he already had his pants down at that point. <laughs> yeah. Creepy Santa Claus beard. Yeah. Surprisingly, this was the second male CO she'd had sex with at the prison. Is it, though? That's not that That surprising. she'd been disciplined for, so who knows <laughs> yeah. if she'd had sex with anyone else. She promised not to tell, but eventually the story came out, and Roe was fired and lost his pension and almost his marriage. Which he was extremely, I would say, committed to. Bitter about? Mm-hmm. Oh, his marriage, yeah, he was committed to that. Yeah, so was his wife. I can't imagine she stayed with him. But yeah, there's an interview with him that Dr. Oz did that's on YouTube. and Quote, unquote, Dr. Yeah. Oz. I would say go watch it because he is an interesting man. Yeah, I think he kind of places the blame on someone else rather than accepting the fate for his own decision. But that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. It's also odd that he did this, got fired, almost lost his marriage, and then was like, I should go to the media and tell them that I had sex with Susan Smith. Yeah, weird choices. Yeah. Well, see, he thinks that it was a big ploy on her part, which we'll get into, but maybe it was just a big ploy on his part to get on Dr. Oz because he's a really <laughs> big fan. I definitely wouldn't put it past Susan to use her sexuality as a weapon. Not a weapon, but a way to coerce people, but I don't think... It was just, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, it was definitely two-sided, but we don't know exactly yeah, it's, how much of what he's saying is true. It definitely takes two to tango. Yeah. In that. Susan apparently got what she wanted. She was transferred to a prison much closer to Union, which allowed her family to come see her more often. There's a psychological construct known as a dark triad that includes three personality disorders, psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. That's a mouthful. Machiavellianism? Yeah. Yeah. Machiavellianism. Machiavellianism is characterized by the manipulation and exploitation of others, callousness, and high levels of self-interest. If the claims that Susan Smith are as manipulative as people say she is are true, Machiavellianism might be a fitting quote-unquote diagnosis for her. As of right now, it's considered strictly a personality construct and not something one can be diagnosed with and it has never been mentioned in the DSM. Because we don't know a lot about Susan from unbiased sources, it's difficult to say if she would qualify. When the worst stories about her come from her ex-husband, whose children she murdered, and her prison guard lover, who lost his job, pension, and any respect anyone had for him, we have to take them with a whole pinch of salt. We do know from her prison records that since 2010, she has been disciplined for marijuana use, stealing another inmate's pin number, and mutilation, whatever that means. Either way, Susan Smith was sentenced to life without parole and will never see the outside of a prison again. 
Now, we went ahead and we did take a quick uh, Machiavellianism test. Yeah, so it was the Mach 4, which is a self-assessment that basically rates you from 1 to 100 on how much of a Machiavelli you are, basically. High Mach and Low Mach is what they call it. Machiavelli. Machiavelli. Illuminati. (laughs) Illuminati. Alter your body like blow like a twelve gauge like shot from a twelve gauge shot. So I'm curious, what did you guys get? I actually didn't think I did too bad. I got a sixty three out of one hundred, okay. which I, I understand that the higher the score, the more of a uh, Machiavelli. They're more of Machiavellianism. Yeah, I, I'm. I would say I'm actually middle of the road, middle to low road uh, among people. There are people with higher, and there are also people with lower. Yeah, Jake, what'd you get? I didn't take it. Yes, you did. Tell us. What did you get? 80. You got an 80? <laughs> Katie, what did you get? I got a 49. Ha! Ha ha! I am so, right in the middle of normal. So, Way to go, low score, high score, so, median, I'm the basic normal. Bitch. I'm the normal. With- I, I am the normal in the room. Give me one second on this, Katie. This never <laughs> happens. Katie's technically right in the 50th percentile, basically, so she's actually normal. But, no, the, the median score looks like it's about 68, on, according to this uh, uh, chart here. You know, the worst part about this is that I actually didn't answer everything truthfully, because I was trying to bring my score to be less rude. Like, <laughs> to be less of a like an asshole. I was like, no, I'm sometimes the nice person on this one. Self-assessments usually have a way to know that you're doing that. Because they're usually not this most reliable thing because they know that people will bullshit them. Well, yeah, that's why they re-ask questions with different wording and stuff like exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. So Yeah, well, I'm not dumb. It didn't tr- trick me. This is, it is on a scale from 0 to 100 or 1 to 100, but anything 60 and above, you're considered a high mock. So you're more Machiavelli than anyone that's below 60, which mm-hmm. there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It doesn't mean that you're like this horrible, manipulative person, and you don't have anything wrong with you, really, but it's just an idea, basically. There's nothing well fully researched behind it. It's still really, really in its infancy. Well, I don't know. Machiavelli wrote The Prince, the, I'm guessing, the... It was a political yeah, it's a politi- essay. It's a political essay based on French uh, political rival families and things like that. It's real boring, but like all these uh, prison psychologists or prisoners that are in prison, they read that, they read The Art of War, they read basically everything they can to try and get a leg up on quote-unquote the competition in there. It helps them get a warrior's mindset. And this is one of the books that they actually read to show them how decisive political action can be greeted with great reward basically is what it is so like killing tupac yeah well it's actually mostly with the disregard of emotion i believe so it's kind of fun to think about but i honestly when i was taking this test i could tell which questions would have earned me the bad score but i also didn't think i would score as high as i did i feel like i'm less of a uh you did it so you deserve it type of person. But, I don't know, that's kind of fun. Really? I've got, I literally have a clip of you saying, John Lennon was a horrible piece of shit and he deserved to get shot in the head. I said, did he deserve it? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that going to end it for us this week, Katie? Mm-hmm. Yep. 
That is all. We're ending it on smoking weed in prison. And be careful around Jake, apparently. Yeah, I know. He'll sell you out for political gain. <laughs> Any chance you get. And there is also, so Machiavellianism is a psychological term and a political term. So yeah. there's two different kind of constructs in both realms. Yeah, they both kind of follow, as far as I can tell, the same sort of path as to what they are and what they're considered. But they're both like bl- blows from a 12-gauge shoddy. Yeah, it's usually used in more of a correction on like police aspect rather than like a clinical psychologist using it. They mm. would never do that. Makes sense. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Four Corners Crimecast, on Instagram at Four Corners Crimecast, on Twitter at Four Corners Cast, and at Four Corners Crimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review uh, on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our website, Four Corners Crimecast.com. You can head over there for a full episode list to send us ideas for an episode you guys want us to cover. Or just to get your free sticker from our merch store by entering the code Bingo Bango at checkout, getting it sent out to your casa for free. So don't forget, it is illegal to whisper in someone's ear while they're hunting a moose in Alaska. Should we do something fun next week that's not about children dying? I was thinking the same thing, but uh, masturbating grandma. We can cover Jake's masturbating grandma, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, we should, probably should do something fun for the listeners. Uh, maybe we can think of something during we'll the off hours. We'll figure it out. We're not a comedy podcast, bro. But all right, guys. We will talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. Is that abusive, Katie? I don't feel like it is. We're both adults.